one as well. We mentioned it. Paul quotes several times from a book called The Wisdom of Solomon, which says very much the same things as he says in chapter 1. And it was a book that was written by a Jew before the, the, the coming of Jesus to show why the Jews were so much superior to the Gentiles. And so at the end of chapter 1, the Jews in the church who are reading Paul's letter are feeling pretty good about themselves. And then you turn around on them and you get to chapter 2. Let's read some verses from chapter 2, shall we? Chapter 2, verse 1. You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself. Because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now, we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you towards repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when the righteous judgment will be, his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will give to each person according to what he has done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be troubles and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. Well, we'll leave the reading there for the moment. We'll have a look at the other verses in a minute. But you can see how the Jews will be getting just a little bit uh, concerned about this at this point. They've been listening in chapter 1 to Paul talking about all kinds of things. And we said last time that there are at least three lessons he has to teach about sin in chapter 1. That sinful behaviour starts with compromises. It's never satisfied. That's why people wander off in search of all kind of perverted directions. And third, sinful behaviour alters your thinking. It makes you see the world in a, a very strange kind of a way so that you turn yourself more and more away from the truth and you're more and more alienated from God. And the Jews might be saying, yep, that's what's happened to the Gentiles. But now Paul is turning around and saying, aha, but you people, whoever you are, whether you're Jewish or Gentile, are you the sort of people that God would accept or not? And I think in this chapter, in chapter 2, he wants to tell the uh, Roman Christians, and especially the Jewish ones, three things. First of all, it doesn't matter what you feel. You might be proud about yourself. You might feel you have a special deal with God. But God deals not in feelings, but in facts. And it's the facts of your life that will determine how God judges you. Second, it doesn't matter what you know. You may feel you know the Jewish law, you know all about the, the history of the Old Testament, you may know lots of things, but that's not the question. The question is what you're doing with what you know, because you can know lots of stuff that you never actually apply to your life. And if you never apply it to your life, what's the point of knowing it in the first place? And then finally at the end of the chapter he's talking about it doesn't matter where you belong. You might be circumcised, as a good Jewish person would be, or you might not be circumcised. You might uh, uh, be someone who has a, an impeccable Jewish ancestry, but that doesn't matter. The important thing is how your heart responds to God. And so uh, that's the uh, uh, way in which he's, he, the chapter, it seems to me, unpacked. So in those verses we've read, I think he's talking about the fact that it doesn't matter what you feel. I think what he tries to do here is to nail three possible thoughts 
that the complacent people might have had in their heads. The first one is, I'm better than they are. I don't do the things these Gentiles do. I'm a good Jew. I still do lots of things that come from my Jewish background because I believe in taking the word of God seriously. Look at them. They haven't got a clue. They've only been Christians five minutes. <laughs> I'm so much better off than they are. And Paul says, watch out. Because you know that when somebody starts being like that, acting superior, it's a telltale sign of an inferiority that they feel. They know deep down in their mind they don't measure up. And so they have to put everybody else down in order to make themselves feel good. You've seen that happen, haven't you? You, you, you know people like that who are always criticising everybody else. Who are always pushing themselves forward? Who are always slipping into conversation? The good things they've done and how important they are. Because that makes them feel good. And you listen to what they say and you think, no, nah, you don't really feel that good about yourself. You're only saying those things to compensate. And Paul says, you could be compensating for the fact that actually you know in your guilty conscience that you're doing lots of stuff you should not be doing. And so uh, he says to them, uh, you who pass judgment do the same things. And we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. Your feelings about what you're like don't really matter. What matters is what God is saying. You are not better than everybody else. It's just a matter of looking at your record and what's coming from your life. Second, they seem to be saying, oh, God doesn't seem to mind. Oh, I know I'm not perfect. I know I, I sometimes tell lies and I occasionally take things that don't belong to me and stuff like that. But, you know, God, God doesn't actually judge me. See, you know, you expect the wrath of heaven to fall on my head as soon as I do something else. It doesn't happen. So God can't be that bothered. God understands me. He knows I'm not perfect and we get on all right. And Paul says, look, it's not like that. If God does not step in straight away in judgment, that's because of goodness. That's because of forbearance. That's because of patience. And you don't want to try God's patience to the limit, do you? I mean, if you've got a friend who's super patient with you, you'd be really devious if you thought, aha, he's really patient, so that means I can screw him up to the mark. I can do whatever I want, he's still not going to... That's not friendship. That's not caring for or respecting the other person. You don't do that. If somebody is patient with you and forbearing and, and loving, what you try to do is, is act in a way that will justify their trust in you. And Paul says, you don't try to get off with as much as you can. Think, well, oh, God doesn't mean to mind. Because God does mind. God minds very deeply indeed. And every time you uh, slip into compromise and sin, you are hurting him. And you need to realize that. And the third thing is, people sometimes think, well, you know, I believe the truth anyway. You know, I'm not a perfect Jew, but at least I'm a Jew, you know. I know the truth. Be very, very careful. Because it's just knowing certain facts that gets anybody into heaven. And Christians today might say the same kind of thing. I know the Gospels. I went to Sunday school. I prayed a little prayer when I was about 13. Therefore, I must be all right with God. No. Because God deals in facts, not in feelings. And what the next um, section of the chapter says is God looks at your life and says, what are you doing? What are the evidences in your life that you usually have been changed by my power? And so uh, uh, he, those three feelings, Paul says, are completely wrong. Let's just look a little bit more at those three words that I mentioned. First of all, Paul says God doesn't judge you straight away because God is a God of goodness. Now, there are two words in Greek for goodness, there's agathosune, which simply means correctness, absolutely getting everything right, 
I got the Sunnis when you got all oh, your thumbs lined up and they all match up and you get a tick by every one of them. And it's a, a kind of cold, formal word. Yes, that's right, in the sense of not wrong. But crestotes is a much nicer word. It's often translated kindness, uh, warmness. In one translation, it's even translated sweetness. Because crestos is the adjective that you would use for a wine that was really mellow to drink. You could drink loads of it because it just tasted so good. It's the, 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 the word that's used of somebody whose relationships with other people are just harmonious and right. And it means a goodness that's not just correct, but a goodness that tries to do things that are great for the other person. A goodness that warms them. A goodness that includes them in. A goodness that doesn't stand still and say, well, that's right and that's wrong, but actually goes out to make you a better person than you are to start with. And if God is patient with you, it's because he's a God of that kind of goodness. second word he uses is tolerance or uh, forbearance. And this is a word you only find twice in the New Testament. The other one is in Romans chapter 3, where it talks about the way that God has been patient down through the centuries, waiting for the moment when the next stage of his plan could happen. And if you think about the patience involved in that, you've created a universe. It's gone away from you. Human beings have sinned. They've broken your heart. You're just desperate to do something about it. And yet, being God, you wait for centuries until the very right moment. And in the fullness of the time, when the time was fully come, God sent forth his son, born of a virgin. The patience it takes to wait for something like that. The word forbearance means holding back. That's what's being talked about. And just as God held back through the centuries until the time was right to send Jesus, so he holds back in your life now from stepping in in judgment straight away. And the third thing, the third word is patience. And that's the Greek word makrathumia. And uh, there was one great preacher, John Chrysostom, uh, a few centuries after Jesus, who, who talked about this Greek word. And he said, what this word means is a patience that doesn't take revenge when it could. It doesn't snip in and do anything nasty. It just bears with the other person because it doesn't, it hates to hurt them. And so if that's God's attitude, he's not holding back because he doesn't care. Oh, look at him. <laughs> he's living another non-Christian life this week. Oh, dear me. Oh, never mind. Never mind. He's one of mine. He's all right. It's not that attitude at all. God looks down from heaven. His heart breaks when he sees you and me living substandard lives that don't match up to the glory that he wants to see coming out of us degree by degree. So Paul says, be careful and be Sure that your feelings are not leading you astray into an inflated idea of yourself. He talks about that again in 1 Corinthians, doesn't he? And he uses the analogy of a boxer, 1 Corinthians chapter, chapter 9. He says, I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and make it my slave. I discipline myself as a Christian. I don't just go along with anything I want to do and just drift into the next activity because it's what everybody else is doing. No, I discipline myself. I I'm, take care of myself. Why? Well, because, he says, I do not want after preaching to others to become a castaway myself. So if I know that certain things are bad for me, I won't do them. If I know that I've developed certain habits that are bad for me, I'll cut them off. I'll stop them. I discipline myself. In fact, the Greek literally means when it says, I, I beat my body, what it literally means is, I give my body a black eye. <laughs> That's the kind of way. He's just saying how serious he was about living life the way he's supposed to as a child of God. And he goes on to say, um, in, in chapter 10, you know, when the Israelites came out of Egypt, they all had the same experience of God's grace and God's mercy. 
The cloud led them all through the desert, the pillar of fire by night, the pillar of cloud by day. They all had the same experience of, of, of the tabernacle in the midst of the camp. All of that was there for all of them. And yet with many of them, God was not well pleased. And they died in the desert. And so he says, that, so anyone who thinks he is standing should take heed lest he fall. It's so possible to think, I'm all right. God's there. God understands. I'm okay with him. You feel okay but you're actually not okay. Well, the Jewish uh, uh, listeners are getting a little bit un uncomfortable at this point, so he goes on to something else. Let's read on from verse 11, shall we? Or verse 12 now. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. But it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it's those who obey the law who will declare righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who don't have the law do by nature things that are required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law, since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. Their conscience is also bearing witness, and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. This will take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. And so he's now saying, to the Jews in particular, it doesn't matter what you know. You may know God's law in fine detail, but actually you often find that people who are not Christians do things which God loves simply because they're human beings. God's law is written on their hearts. It's no surprise, is it, that all of the great world religions have basically the same moral teaching. Why is that? It's because they're made by God in his image. And we have God's ideas about right and wrong hardwired into us. Okay, the way we live in different cultures may, may make us brutal and cruel and lying and all sorts of things, but, but the basic idea, the knowledge of what we ought to be like is there in all of us. It's been quite interesting this weekend, hasn't it, to see people in Poland and uh, Moldova and Romania who have not, no Christian commitment whatsoever going to the, 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 the border just to help people any way they can. The BBC interviewed a guy called Pavel yesterday in Poland who had driven up to Medica on the frontier there uh, in his car and he was going around offering links to people who needed to get to other Polish towns. And it was way, way, way oversubscribed because when people have just walked 15 kilometres to get to the border and they're over there and they don't know what to do next to have somebody turn up with a car and say, hi, where would you like to go? Przemysl? Jeshuv? I'll take you. And Pavel, as far as I know, was not a Christian. He was just doing something that was good. And, and that happens, uh, says Apostle Paul. So just knowing the law is not necessarily a great advantage. And he says God's judgment will be based on what you have actually done. Now, we need to be very careful here because he's not saying that you will be judged uh, the recipient of a ticket into heaven if you have done lots of good things. That is salvation by works. Paul does not believe in that, as we're about to see in chapter 3. It's not the goodness of your works that are going to take you into heaven, but they are the evidence of who you are. What's the difference? Well, suppose that some night the police find you standing over a freshly killed corpse, uh, holding a knife that is covered in blood, and the blood is the blood of that person. They would arrest you straight away. You would not be condemned for standing over a corpse. There's no law against that. You would not be condemned for having a bloody knife. There's no law against that either. 
You would not even be condemned for having a knife that had the blood of the other person on it. But those things are the evidence that would lead to a charge of murder, aren't they? And so you wouldn't be condemned because of the things themselves. That would simply be the evidence that showed that you were guilty. And so the good works and the evil works that we're responsible for are the evidence that God looks at when he says, listen, do I let this person into heaven or not? Is this person judged right with me or not? And what we're going to find out in chapter 3, just to give you a sneak preview, is that there is none that is righteous. No, not one. Nobody gets to heaven simply on the basis of the good deed. But that's the evidence that you need to look at in your life. And he talks about people who, by patient continuance in well-doing, living a life that just produces good works. How do you do that? You can't do it on your own. No matter how you discipline yourself, no matter how you, you, you set yourself a, a punishing agenda, you will not have the inner power to do that. The only way that you can live that kind of life is to allow the Holy Spirit to take you and transform you. And when you become a Christian, as Paul wants to tell the Romans, you are made over by God in such a way that you're, you, you start producing the fruit of righteousness. You start living in a different way. And that is the evidence in your life that you don't just know about it, you don't just feel right, but it's actually there. So he said to the Jewish believers in the church, what are you relying on? Are you relying on Jesus Christ and his past working through you, through the Holy Spirit, to make you different? Or are you relying on your ancestry, on the fact that you, 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 you come from a Jewish family? You, you've always done the right Jewish things. Same thing for us today, isn't it? You may come from a Christian family. You may know an awful lot about the Bible. And you may still not be a Christian. So, that's the second section. God judges by what you've actually done. Now, you might say on, this way, uh, on the way through, well, what about those who've never heard the gospel? And this is not really my subject this morning, and I won't talk about it too, too long, because we're short of time anyway, but I think there are three things I would say. We don't know quite what God will do with those who have never heard the gospel, because the Bible never addresses that question directly. But there are three things that we do know very well. First of all, God is fair. God does not allow people to be judged on a basis of something that they have misunderstood, rejected because they do not make sense of it, or something like that. God is fair. The great uh, Christian philosopher Dallas Willard once said, God, nobody slips into hell on a technicality. It's not that God is looking for chances to slip us up and condemn us. It's God is absolutely fair. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? The second thing we know is that God is love. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, says God to Ezekiel, and not rather that he should turn from his wickedness and live. God is not looking for chances to trip us up and send us into condemnation. God loves the world of sinners lost, and he wants everyone to come back to him. So God is fair, God is love. The third thing that we know is that God knows us. And for someone who has not had the chance to be confronted with Jesus Christ in the way that most of us, I guess, here have, where we have seen clearly in our minds that there is a choice to be made, Jesus or not, heaven or hell. People who have never been in that situation, I think God knows already how they would have responded had they had the chance. And so based on those things, um, we just have to be uh, hopeful, I guess, about what happens to many people who have never heard the gospel. John Stott said, we cannot know, but we can be hopeful. And he points to verses that talk about those who stand before the throne of God being like the, the stars in the sky uh, uh, for the number, like the grains of sand on the seashore. 
and vast number that nobody can count. And that doesn't sound just like people who are card-carrying members of the Evangelical Alliance. So we don't know. We just don't. But we can be hopeful that God will be fair, that God loves those people, and that God knows exactly what to do. Anyhow, let's move on to what we're supposed to be talking about, which is the last bit, and we're, then we're finished, I promise you. Third, he wants to say in the second half of the chapter, it doesn't matter where you belong. Now, I think I'm going to leave, leave most of this for you to read on your own because we are short of time. But he says, if you call yourself a Jew, he swings around and says, aha, it's you Jews I'm really talking to. You know that, don't you? <laughs> and he, he drops any pretense that he's talking about anybody else and says, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and brag about your relationship to God, you know his will and approve of what is superior because you're instructed by the law. If you're convinced that you're a guide for the blind, a light for those in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of infants. He was just using phrases there that the Jews did actually use about themselves when he talked about the pagan world. If, then, you teach others, do you not teach yourself? And he comes through with a barrage of questions. Do you teach others? Do you teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Actually, that's an interesting one. People can say, surely Jewish people wouldn't go into pagan temples and rob them. Well, no, but that word temple also means shrine. And we know that the same word is used in the book of Acts in Ephesus, where the town clerk says, hey, 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 what are you people starting a riot against the Christians for? Because they're, they, they, they're not uh, denigrators of temples, and he uses exactly the same word here. Now, we know that the riot was because Dimitri, the silversmith and his mates, made little silver shrines that they used to sell to tourists. And they were very small, pocket-sized things that you'd carry in your luggage, and which would be very easy if you were at the market just to help yourself to off the edge of somebody's stall. And so Jews occasionally seem to have been accused of helping themselves to those things and then selling them at a profit. And Paul's saying it's hypocrisy, basically, isn't it? Because you despise idolatry, but you're making money out of it by stealing at the same time. <laughs> That's just completely twisted. And so he says, with all of these things... Those actions show that your heart is not right. You're not in the right position as far as God is concerned. And then he talks in the last bit about circumcision. That painful thing that happened when you were eight days old, if you were a Jewish boy, which you then prided yourself on for the rest of your life. Nothing to do with you, really. It was your parents that decided for you. But still, you'd been through it, and so you thought, that made me a, a child of God. Well, the last thing I want to say this morning is, you can read more about that in Philippians chapter 3 as well. And if you turn there, you'll find that Paul says, you know, there are people going around saying, we are the circumcision. We've been done. We've had the operation. So we are the holy people of God. And Paul says to a bunch of people in Philippi, some of whom were Jews and some of whom were not, we are the real circumcision. The circumcision that God is looking for these days is not a physical thing that happens in your body. We are the real circumcision, he says, who worship by the Spirit, who let the Holy Spirit take our lives and make them an attitude of worship to God, so that not just when we meet on a Sunday morning, but every day of, uh, of the week, the Spirit helps our life be an act of worship so that God gets pleasure out of watching us doing what we're doing. We glory in Jesus. And he says we, 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 we have no other ultimate goals or things that we live for apart from that. We glory in the Lord Jesus Christ and what he wants is what we want. His kingdom is what we're shooting for, what we're living for. We are the first fruits of that kingdom and we have no agenda of our own other than what he wants to happen. 
And so we worship by the Spirit, we glory in Jesus. And Paul says, we have no confidence in the flesh. Which means basically, we rely on nothing in ourselves. We commit ourselves simply to being children of the Father. And the only dignity we have, and the only confidence we have before God, is that we are part of his family. We have come to the Father by Jesus. And Father, Son, and Spirit are involved in our lives. And that makes us circumcision, he says. Be careful. It's not how you feel. It's not what you know. It's not where you belong. It's where your heart is with God. And whether your life is showing the results of that in action. I'm going to hand back to Ashley now.